The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Currently on Top Docs, we're featuring interviews with the directors of almost all of the films recently named to the Oscar shortlist category of Best Documentary Feature, including Margaret Brown, director of Descendant, now streaming on Netflix, Sarah Dosa of Fire of Love, Laura Poitras of All the Beauty in the Bloodshed, Seanic Sen of All That Breathes, and many more. Be sure to stay tuned to Top Docs for more Oscar-related conversations, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Sundance senior programmer, nonfiction, Basil Siokos, who joins me to preview the documentary lineup at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival. Last year, I had a great conversation with Basil about the feature documentary selections, and I was thrilled to have him back again this year to go in-depth about just some of the films that he's really excited about. Basil was also clearly excited by the fact that after two years of being virtual, Sundance is back on the mountain as a fully loaded in-person event happening January 19th through the 29th in Park City and Salt Lake City, Utah. We didn't have time to cover every film in our conversation, but this is a great way to just dive into the lineup and learn about many of the exciting documentaries screening in the various sections, including the two competition sections, U.S. and World Cinema, as well as in the premieres, next, and spotlight sections. Sundance is always a great predictor of some of the top documentaries of the year, so buckle your seatbelts for this thrilling ride up the mountain. Please note that as he was going through the U.S. documentary section, Basil mentioned one film, which will appear on Netflix, about how sexual assault victims are themselves being prosecuted for filing false police reports against those they are accusing of assaulting them. But he didn't mention the title of the film. It is called Victim Slash Subject and is directed by Nancy Schwartzman. Be sure to check out more info about the films and find out which titles are available to view both in person and during the second half of the festival online within the United States by going to festival.sundance.org. Incidentally, Top Docs, that is Mike Merrill and myself, are also thrilled that this year's Sundance Film Festival is in person and we'll be there ourselves. So maybe, hopefully, we'll see you there. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at Top Docs Pod and on Twitter also at Top Docs Pod. And now, my conversation with Basil Siokos. Basil Siokos, welcome to Top Docs. Thanks for having me. And actually, I should say welcome back. We did this a year ago. It was totally delightful to have you then, and we're thrilled to have you back. So thanks for coming back. Absolutely. I enjoyed it very much last year and happy to talk about this year's crop of films as well. The timing of today's interview is such that the Oscar shortlist was just named about an hour or two ago. So I wanted to just take a moment and ask you about any surprises or things that jumped out at you about this year's shortlist. Yeah, I think that there were some surprises, which is always nice. I think it's obviously something that a lot of people spend a lot of time talking about and writing about. I think that there were definitely titles that were expected to be on there, and they were, and that's fantastic. There are certain titles that were widely debated whether they would make it or not. One notable one is Goodnight Oppie, which seemed to have a lot of traction going into this, and so it seems like what they call snub. But that's how this kind of shakes out. And there's Academy itself. The membership has changed so much in recent years that it's not a surprise that there are going to be some different titles in there that you might not expect. I love seeing that there's some international titles represented, certainly beyond, I of course love All That Breathes and we're really excited that that one's in there, but that was kind of a, a given for a lot of people that it was going to be there, but it wasn't quite as, as a given that House of Splinters would be there. So as another Sundance title, we're really excited that one was there. But even something like Children of the Mist, which I think has support on the international side, but maybe is not necessarily known quite as well for more general US voters. I was definitely pleased to see that the shortlist was a little bit more Diverse on that international level, certainly. So those were some of the things that I thought were really great. And also great to see smaller films like smaller. And I mean that not in a pejorative sense, but just titles that weren't necessarily as blown up in terms of people discussing to be on there, like Bad Axe, for example. I'm glad 
titles like that have made the cut as well and have a shot at resonating with the larger membership. Yeah, it did seem like there were a couple of films that I guess I would call them later bloomers in the race. Bad Axe was one. Hidden Letters. Hidden Letters, yeah, absolutely. That's another one that's a really great film and lovely to see. And again, one that for some might feel like or might on the surface seem like a smaller topic, but it's actually really lovely. And it's, again, wonderful that the shortlist recognizes that. It's also worth noting last year, I believe six of the 15 Oscar shortlisted feature docs premiered at Sundance and this year even more, right? Yeah. Yeah, we have eight this year, which we're happy about. I mean, awards are just one measure of success that we see for filmmakers, but it's wonderful for them. It obviously does a lot in terms of their standing in the doc community and awareness. So it's lovely to see that. But of course, we recognize that awards are not necessarily the only path towards success for our filmmakers, but it's lovely when it happens for those that do care about such things. And I'd love to hear any predictions you might have for films that you think might make the top five. This is always a fraught consideration, right? There are titles that always seem that they're kind of given, but you never know. I'd be incredibly surprised if All That Breathes and Fire of Love didn't make it. I think those seem to me, based on so many factors, awards and recognition and discussions and all that kind of stuff, they seem the ones I would be super surprised not to see in there. I'd probably say the same thing for Navalny and the Territory as well. And then on that fifth slot, I probably think that Laura Poitras has the best shot at it, but sometimes there is resistance to nominating somebody that's already won or that's already been nominated a lot of times. But I feel like that's most likely where that last slot would go. But you never know. I mean, there's other really fantastic films in the mix. And as I mentioned earlier, the large sort of international contingent now, would they throw their muscle behind the international film, All That Breeze, or would they throw out more love for something like A House Made of Splinters? I'm not quite sure. But I do think that those five seem the most likely. That's where I would end up. Great. And happily, we have podcast interviews with all five of those directors that people can look for at Top Docs. Excellent. So this is the first Sundance Film Festival, knock on wood, in three years that will be in person. And the world has clearly gone through a lot in those three years. So I thought it was worth taking a step back and asking, why does Sundance still matter? In terms of our role, you know, we are part of this larger ecosystem around film. Our mission has always been and continues to be to support independent filmmakers, independent film artists. And our role we see as being really important. We take it very seriously. We recognize that the choices we make bring a certain slate of films out into the world every January. And these are films that are discussed for the rest of the year. Again, some move on to awards, some move into distribution, some move into broadcasts, etc. So we recognize that and we take it very seriously that we are helping to, in some cases, help launch careers. In other cases, we're supporting veteran filmmakers to get their work out because it's not as easy as people think. Just because you have one successful film doesn't mean that you automatically have a career or the ability to get your other films made. We take that all very seriously and we make our decisions keeping in mind to try to have a balance of those kinds of films, both newcomers, new voices, especially underrepresented voices historically, but also not ignoring the fact that there are really talented filmmakers out there that are making their second or third or 10th film. We really want to have a nice balance of representation in terms of the kinds of films and filmmakers we are supporting each year. So last year looked like it was going to be in person until the last moment, and then it was forced to go all virtual. So this will be the first Sundance that will be a hybrid in-person and virtual event. What effect, if any, do you think that will have on how films are received by audiences, how they're talked about? And in terms of the feedback loop that gets back to filmmakers and their teams, what effect do you think this will have, if any, on those folks? The important thing that we want to emphasize is that we learned a lot from the last couple of years of being online, and we value that audience. We value the ability to share films with a wider audience that either isn't able to, doesn't want to come out to Park City for whatever reason, financially logistically, whatever the situation might be. And so that's part why it was important for us to have an online component this year. It's not every single film, but it's a very large percentage of the lineup this year. It's all the competitions and several films from other sections as well. At the same time, our focus being back in person is to be back in person. Our real priority is to emphasize that we want people back on the mountain. We want people back in the theaters. And so the first half of the festival is all about the in-person experience. We don't begin the online component until the Tuesday of the festival. So the first five days are all about the in-person. Then we start rolling out the online offerings for audiences outside of Park City and Salt Lake City. So for us, it's important to have both. And we think that there's value in having both. But really, we are excited to be 
able to get on that stage with filmmakers, to feel the energy of the audience, to get those standing ovations and applause and questions and debates that come from having in-person screenings. And that kind of feedback and that kind of direct audience connection is vital for filmmakers to receive after spending who knows how many years working on their projects. Not to say that the online experience didn't give some measure of connection to audiences, but it's a different thing. And so we are very, very excited to be back in person, to be able to provide that experience, not only for our filmmakers on the one hand, but of course, for the audiences on the other hand, the ability for audiences to interact with filmmakers and also with each other to have those moments that happen at festivals where you are waiting in line and you are talking about a film you saw and someone you don't know listens in and says, oh, I was excited about that one. How was it? And to have those really fantastic conversations of sharing enthusiasm and love for film. Well, speaking for myself, I'm going this year and I can't wait. There's nothing like Sundance in my opinion. And in fact, in honor of this interview, I wore my Sundance 2014 t-shirt, uh, which was the first Sundance that I attended in person. So I can't wait. I love that. So one last question here, and then we're going to jump into talking about the lineup. Two noteworthy things have happened since you and I had this conversation a year ago, maybe more than two, but two that I'm going to mention here. One was a controversy surrounding one of last year's documentary selections, Jihad Rehab. And the other noteworthy event was a change in the festival's leadership. Tabitha Jackson departed the festival in June. And as I understand it, this year's festival was led by Sundance Institute CEO, Joanna Vicente, alongside Director of Programming, Kim Utani, and the Institute's leadership team. As folks probably know, New York Film Festival Executive Director Eugene Hernandez was announced as the new festival director, but he will not take over leadership of the festival until next year. And as far as Jihad Rehab goes, no interest in rehashing that issue here. My question is, did either of these two things change any practices or procedures at the festival that are worth noting? Yeah, I wouldn't say exactly change, but one of the things I can say is that we have been doing this as part of our practice in general, but did formalize it more by adding a question to our submission form this year that allows filmmakers to provide information about the duty of care that they have and the relationship they have with the protagonists of their film, the subjects of their film. It is open-ended, so it allows filmmakers to answer the question as they like, as they understand it. In some cases, it doesn't make any sense at all if it's, let's say, an archival film about subjects that no longer exist and there's no particular controversy or anything that might be in place, but there is space to provide information about sort of their practices, what kind of support they offer for the participants, particularly, let's say, if they're dealing with a topic that is at all triggering, has any kind of sensitivity to it, just to make sure that they have consent, that they've clearly thought about these issues, and allows them just general space to talk about the relationship they have with the practice of filming the people that they filmed with. So that did go into the submission questions this year and is useful to us. Um, typically, I'll say it was useful to us after we watch the film. It's not necessarily that we looked at it before we watched the film, but if we had questions that helped to provide some guidance as to how this project came about and the relationship that filmmakers had to the people within their films. As for the Tabitha and Eugene question, you're correct in terms of how you laid out your understanding of how the 2023 festival has been shaped. Eugene was not a part of it. He began with us in November. He sat in on some of our programming meetings, but Joanna did fill in for his role, as it were, on the programming side. And of course, Kim Yutani led the programming team to make our decisions. Eugene is already, of course, thinking through what 2024 is going to look like. And so he'll be at the festival, of course, and on the ground and having those kinds of conversations and all of that. So not having a festival director in place didn't necessarily change things dramatically because, again, Joanna was sitting in on that role. And so she functioned as a de facto festival director on that level. But we were in great hands with her and with Kim, of course, and the rest of my colleagues. So we're very proud of the program that we've come up with. And we really think audiences are going to respond very strongly to it. Great. Thank you. So let's talk about the numbers. Can you take us through some of the key numbers for the competition sections and the submissions this year? Sure. So one thing that's super notable this year is that we received more submissions than we have before, which is sort of surprising, you know, on one level, just because we were not sure exactly how the fallout from the ongoing pandemic would have in terms of people's ability to finish their films and get them submitted to us, et cetera. But we had a total of nearly 16,000 submissions. I think the actual number is 15,855 of 
those. The majority, as usual, are short films. So we're talking about just over 4,000 feature length films. Of those, just close to 1,700 were from the US and about 2,400 were international. So, you know, that's a fairly large number of projects to be considering. And just to be clear, we've announced 101 feature films that have been selected so far. There may be some surprises coming down the pike for a few more extra submissions there. But it is a challenging and competitive process to get into the festival. Those are the sort of large, big picture numbers in terms of the overall submissions and what we've selected. In terms of the competitions, we were able to up the number of films per competition this year. In the last couple of years, we've had 10 films per the U.S. Documentary and Dramatic and World Documentary and Dramatic competitions. This year, they're up to 12. So there are 12 times four there. And then we have our next competition, which this year has nine. So there are quite a few films in there as well, but still a relatively small number. You know, we are a competitive festival, so we can't show everything as much as we'd love to. Incredibly impressive, as always, in terms of diversity. And we'll put in some additional numbers in the show notes for people to take a look at. Let's go ahead and talk about the U.S. documentary competition section. What would you like to start off with? Sure. This is where we are so excited to share a bunch of new voices, but also there are a fair amount of films that are by alumni filmmakers as well. So it's a pretty diverse group of films. This is a hotly contested part of the programming process, what goes into competition, of course. There's 14 people on the programming team, and we spend hours debating these and coming up with what goes here. So we are very passionate about these films, and we really hope that audiences will share our enthusiasm for them when they get a chance to see them. I can go through sort of little buckets, different kinds of things that are in this section. And if we don't cover something, feel free to ask me about it. One thing that I'll note is that you will have already seen throughout the lineup, not just in the U.S. documentary competition, but throughout the other documentaries that we're showing in premieres for for example, there are a lot of biographical documentaries this year. And believe me when I say it was a very tough process because there were so many submitted beyond this as well. It's one of those things that happens, Ken, that there are weird coincidences where you get 50 biographical docs submitted in one year and the next year you only get five. So you never know. It's kind of what happens and what people are working on. But in this section, in the U.S. Documentary Competition, I'll start with the most notable one, which is our Day One film. And Day One films, for the audience out there, are representation of films from various sections that we screen on the first day of the festival. We believe in all our films, obviously, but these are ones that we really think audiences are going to be excited about. In lieu of a single opening night film, we have many films that show the diversity of our lineup. In this case, from the U.S. Documentary Competition, that Day One film is Little Richard, I Am Everything. So this film is about Little Richard, the musician, the performer, you know, super well-known. But what I love about a lot of the biographical documentaries on the festival this year, we don't have any that are really just straightforward. Here is the A to B of a person's life. They deal with something larger than just the individual person's life. There are bigger themes in play. And so for this one in particular, one of the reasons that we fell in love with this film is that, yes, it tells the compelling story of Little Richard, about his music, about his background, all of those things. But it tells larger elements to his story. Most notably, it really delves into the deep conflict that he had between his religion and his sexuality. It also very much talks about not just his experience, but uses his experience as sort of a microcosm to talk about the way that Black artists' work has been appropriated. And in this case, how his style, his music, his aesthetic were taken up by white artists primarily, and he was not given his due. So it really looks at these larger questions of artistic practice, about who is valued in our society, how we devalue and change history and whitewash history to tell narratives that are more comfortable for some people. At the same time, the film makes an argument for the queer, Black, Southern origins of rock and roll, which is very different from the kind of narratives that we are told about history of uh, rock and roll music. We love Lisa Cortez. She is a filmmaker who we've supported as a producer in the past. She was at the festival many years ago with Push, based on the book by Sapphire. But she also has a unique standing this year in Lisa has both a film she's directed, this film, and has also produced a feature documentary, Invisible Beauty, that is in our premieres categories. But we love her and we're so excited to be able to share this film with audiences. I was pretty blown away when I kept seeing Lisa's name appear as I went through the lineup. Incredibly impressive. Yeah, for sure. And then the other thing about the biographical documentaries this year is that some of them are about familiar subjects, and some of those we'll talk about in the premieres category when we get there. But there's also really fantastic biographical documentaries about individuals who may be a little less recognized. They're under-recognized or forgotten figures. 
For example, I'd say the disappearance of share height, which is in the U.S. documentary competition. Share height is a figure that many listeners probably will not recognize. She published a book in 1976 called The Height Report, and it was a sociological study about the sex lives of women based on a series of anonymous surveys that she sent out. It was a really provocative work that resulted in Cher Height, the author, really becoming a public figure. She was all over news reports. She was all over the talk show circuit talking about her work and in some cases defending her work from people who wanted to accuse her of bad research, men who were just threatened by the findings that she had. With that work, the Height Report, and then follow-up works, she also did the Height Report on male sexuality. She was really in the public consciousness from the mid-70s through the 80s, but people don't remember her anymore. And it's weird. Her book is still one of the best-selling books of of all time, but people just don't remember Cher Height. And so this film really delves into not only her background, and she's fascinating. She is a really unforgettable figure in so many ways, but this film really looks at what happens when women speak out. And so it's a fascinating look at not only her particular story, but again, speaks to that larger question around how we deal with things in our society that are uncomfortable. And so we're really excited about that. It's also by an alum of the festival, Nicole Noonan, who's been at the festival several times, but most recently as one of the directors of Crip Camp. So really excited about that one. In those two films in particular, I think, show the kind of range that we have in terms of the biographical documentaries that are part of the lineup this year, because they're dealing with both well-known figures and then figures that maybe are not quite as well-known or only well-known within certain circles. Yeah. And when I heard about that film, maybe a year and a half ago, that it was in the works, I was one of those people was like, oh yeah, Cher Height. She was huge when I was in college. Whatever happened to her? Exactly. So I can't wait to see this film. One other one I think that I'll talk about that's on the biographical side is Nam June Paik. Moon is the oldest TV. And now this is Nam June Paik. There are audience members that are going to know him for sure. He is one of the most important artists of the 20th century, arguably kind of created video art. And most fascinatingly for a lot of us that didn't know that much about him, he coined the phrase information superhighway. He came up with these fantastic projects that kind of presaged the internet. He did this really amazing sort of 1984 inspired public television broadcast where he brought together PBS stations, not only US, but then the public television offerings from other countries to do a joint broadcast for New Year's. That was just fascinating, full of mistakes, full of errors and everything, but it was just really ahead of its time. So again, another one where there's going to be an audience that knows him and is like, duh, Nam Jim Paik. But there's also a larger swath of people that do not know who he is. And this film helps introduce him to a wider, more general audience. So another really fascinating film by a first-time filmmaker this time, actually, that we are so excited to be able to support. And again, puts a different spin on the biographical documentary in terms of talking about these larger issues around how he's impacted society and how this sort of multidisciplinary approach to art practice was unusual for the time, but it is obviously so important to so many artists these days who are working across genres, not just in one particular field. And a third biographical film that I'm really looking forward to seeing is by Sundance veterans Michelle Stevenson and Joe Brewster, who won a special jury prize, I think it's a decade ago, for their great film, American Promise. And they're back with the biography of Nikki Giovanni. That's right. It's a fantastic film called Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni Project. This is another great example, similar to the Nam Jim Paik, where some people know who Nikki Giovanni is. She's known as sort of the poet of the Black Revolution. She's been doing her work, writing poetry and essays, et cetera since the 1960s, but she's not necessarily a household name for everybody. And this film takes a really creative approach to telling her story. The film itself, the title is fascinating. It comes from one of Giovanni's works that likens the experience of space exploration to the experience of the slave trade of the Middle Passage and basically challenges us, NASA, the US, et cetera. If you want to know about a space exploration and what that will do to us, you have to ask Black people because they went through this experience of going from a familiar location to the great unknown. Really challenging, thought-provoking work I love Michelle and Joe. Their work is fantastic. We're happy to have them back. And they really bring a unique perspective and approach to telling the story. I hesitate to call it experimental because I don't think it's experimental in some way that's off-putting because it's incredibly accessible, but it is done in a really incredibly creative way, a creative nonfiction, let's call it, in terms of how to tell this story and introduce Nikki Giovanni to a larger audience. One thing that Sundance is known for, of course, are social issue documentaries. Are there any in this category that you want to point out? Absolutely. We are really excited to be able to share the new film from Nancy Schwartzman. She made a film called Roll Red Roll several years back. This film is a Netflix production. 
it looks at this really disturbing trend that's happening. The film follows a journalist who noticed this trend and investigated it, where women who were the victims of sexual assault report the sexual assault to the local police. And in turn, instead of the police following up and trying to investigate the sexual assault, they basically force confessions out of these women that they made up the whole thing and then arrest them as filing a false police report. So it turns the victim into a suspect. Really harrowing stories to hear how this happened, why it's happening. It's really eye-opening. It's something that we didn't know very much about on the programming team. And we really think audiences are going to be surprised by this kind of practice and hopefully will lead to changing this for policing to let these kinds of things not happen anymore. Another one that is along this path is a film called Bad Press. This is a film that looks at freedom of the press, but it does so in a really fascinating way by looking at a microcosm. And that microcosm happens to be the Muscogee Creek Nation, where in contrast to the U.S. Constitution, where the freedom of the press is enshrined, a lot of indigenous nations don't necessarily have freedom of the press as part of their constitutions. There are various reasons for this, but it's just one of those things. The Muscogee Nation did have freedom of the press added into their constitution not too long ago. But what the film does is it follows the Muscogee media. This is a local newspaper that reports about issues related to the Muscogee Creek Nation. And they are not necessarily interested in just publishing puff pieces that are all about the happy things that are happening in their nation. They also are doing hard-hitting journalistic stories. And Sometimes they're critical of their leadership. And so what seems to have happened, their view of it is that because of the criticism, at a certain point, there's an emergency session of the leadership that takes away the freedom of the press. And that then leads to this film, which follows what happens next. Again, it speaks to a much larger issue that's happening around the erosions of freedoms around the country and around the world. We found this film quite riveting in certain ways, much more surprisingly than we thought it would be. We hope people will check this one out because it's really important. And the cast of characters that they focus on are really fascinating. And it's a different kind of look at indigenous stories. You don't usually see this kind of story. It's not what's typically told about Native communities. I don't know if it's possible to be in the Sundance U.S. documentary category and fly under the radar, but among the films we haven't talked about yet, is there anything that you might want to spotlight that isn't necessarily a front and center issue or about a well-known person? We love all of these films. So I agree with you. It's hard to fly under the radar. And I don't think this film will fly under the radar, but it is a film that is more personal and it's by a first-time filmmaker. And that's Junum. This is a film by Sierra Urich. She is herself in the film, and it follows the story of herself and three generations of her family, her mother and her grandmother. They are both from Iran, and Sierra herself has never been to Iran. It seems unlikely that she ever would be able to go. She grew up in Vermont. She has this very sort of fractured sense of her Iranian identity. What she knows about Iran is through the stories of her family and food, holidays, all those sorts of things. She grew up in a place that there wasn't a very vibrant or large Iranian community as well. And so this film is really about her relationship to her roots and then also her mother and her grandmother's connection. The film title, Junum, is a Farsi term. It's a term of endearment. It's a really lovely film. And there are moments of fantastic humor in it, even though it deals in certain cases with very difficult subject matter at times. The dislocation that follows leaving one's country, the sense of not being connected to one's roots. But there is a sense of humor and there's a sense of discovery in this film that we really responded to. And we think it's just a lovely, lovely film that gives you more and more each time the longer you stay with it. Her grandmother is one of the best protagonists of a film that I've seen in a long time. A sense of humor around her interactions with her granddaughter. There's a sense of language dis dislocation as well. Sierra is learning how to speak Persian. And so she's not able to fully communicate with her grandmother in the way that she'd like to. There's just lovely moments. And beyond it being a story specifically about Iran, which it is, it also, we think, will speak to anybody that is from any kind of background that involves immigration. As a first-generation Greek-American, I related to this just in the sense of how I communicate with some of my family members. And others on the programming team have the same kind of feeling with this film. So unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about all the films in the U.S. documentary category. So I would refer people to the Sundance website to check out the rest. But now let's move on to the World Cinema Documentary Competition category, which I think has been just an incredibly strong category in the last few years. Yeah, we're very proud of this section. It's a very diverse section in terms of the regions that are represented. Again, it has a large number of filmmakers that are first timers, but then also there's a couple in here that have made films before. I'll start there actually, which is we're really excited to be able to welcome back Maita Alberti. 
who made The Mole Agent most recently at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. She's back this year with a film called The Eternal Memory, a very different film from The Mole Agent, but it continues her career path really of being able to spotlight very intimate stories, often, but not always, but often involving older people. And in this case, it is the story of a pair that have been together for 25 years. He was a reporter, a cultural commentator in the news in Chile, and now he's losing his memory and he's losing his connection to the stories of his country and the complicated history that they have. And he's also losing his connection to his wife, who is helping him to remember. While it deals with the specificities of Chilean history and their own story, it obviously is dealing with a subject that many people have a connection with who are dealing with family members that are struggling with Alzheimer's or dementia. It's a really lovely film handled incredibly sensitively. And like I said, we're always happy to welcome back strong work from alumni filmmakers like Maita. Absolutely. And The Mole Agent was nominated for an Oscar. It was. There are two films about Ukraine. Can you talk about Yes, um, yes, absolutely. And we expect there'll be a lot of attention on these and rightfully so. There are two films that are from Ukraine and deal with Ukraine from very different perspectives. The first one I'll mention is Iron Butterflies. This one really focuses on the past. It sets up a context for understanding what happened earlier this year, what has been going on actually since 2014, but that we weren't necessarily paying close enough attention to around the world. And that film, Iron Butterflies, looks at the downing of the Malaysian flight that was actually the subject of a film we showed last year on the fiction side called Klondike. This film really is an investigative documentary, very creatively told. Again, I wouldn't use the word experimental here because I think that is off-putting for some people, but it is definitely very creative in terms of how it approaches an investigative documentary space. It really gives you much needed information and background to understand the relationship between Ukraine and Russia and how this incident in 2014 helps to set up what should have happened in terms of holding Russia accountable and did not happen, which led to the more open aggression that took place later on, which is the subject of the other film that we have this year, 20 Days in Maripol. This is a film that is, you know, I'll be very frank that it's going to be a hard watch for some people, but it's a very essential watch. This is the kind of film that we see as sort of bearing witness. And it's important that it's part of the festival, that people see this film and really understand what is taking place in the world in a place that they may not know that much about. The footage that's in this film, some of it may be familiar to people because it is footage that came out of Maripol during the siege. And it was footage that the AP released, it was on major networks, but it shows what went into getting that footage and sort of everything around it. The film follows the reporters, essentially, as they are stuck in Maripol, documenting what's going on. They are there when the hospital is bombed, and they are seeing the results of that. They are there when people are evacuating their homes and trying to get to safe ground. And it really shows what is going on. It shows how the city was attacked, and it shows how they are trying to film this for posterity, for people to understand what actually did happen, and to put a lie to the misinformation and the disinformation that Russia was putting out around what was going on in Ukraine and how they were not hitting civilian targets in Ukraine, where clearly they were. And this film shows that. So the two of these films combined give a really provocative look at what the situation is in Ukraine, Russia's role in it, and what the international community should be aware of. There have been a lot of great documentaries, both features and shorts, coming out of India in the last few years. And you've got a film, Against the Tide, which I'd love to hear a bit more about that. And I'll just say I was on a grant panel a year or so ago and saw a trailer of this, and I was really excited. And so I'm thrilled to see the film is made and can't wait to see it. I'm glad you asked about this film. We love this film. It's a first-time feature director named Sarvnik Kar from India. She embedded herself within this community that she documents, which is the Kohli fishing community in Bombay. It's an indigenous group of fisher folk, essentially. And she became involved through a process that involved social organizing around issues that were facing that community. She ended up focusing on two men who are so close that they consider themselves brothers. They're not actually biologically related, but they are part of this community and very close friends. One of them fishes in a very traditional way. The other one was educated in the West and fishes using modern technology and thinks that he needs to in order to have a chance at sustaining his career and to take care of his family. And it really shows the disconnect and the friction that this causes between these two friends. It's an intimate character-based story that tells a larger story around climate change, around the impact that we are having on our environment and on our oceans. And it's done in this really, it feels lived in. It feels like, even though she herself is not Coley, just to be clear, it feels like she is very 
tuned into this community and is part of it and has been embraced by it. It's that kind of film where, you know, audiences that might feel fatigue from more traditional kind of environmental documentaries, this is a way of sharing those stories, but in a human way, humanistic way, that it's not all statistics and numbers and all those sorts of things. It is the actual impact and ramifications of the decisions we make about our environment on these people and on what happens to them and their families. And it's done in a really lovely way. We really hope audiences will check this one out because it's a really special film. When you were talking about the U.S. documentary category, you mentioned Junum. I'm wondering if there are any personal documentaries in the world cinema section. Yes, for sure. We have several. I'd love to talk about one from the UK to start, and that's called Is There Anybody Out There? This film is by a filmmaker named Ella Glendinning. And Ella has a visible disability. She has a very rare genetic condition where her body looks very different from others. She has very shortened legs and sometimes uses a wheelchair, other times walks around. But because of the rareness of her condition, she doesn't really see other people like her. And so she sets out initially to find others that have her same body. What she discovers, in addition to meeting people that have similar conditions, is the ableism that's all around us. And so what we mean by that and what she means by that is that she talks to doctors who work with people that have her condition, and she gets the impression that they see her as a problem to be fixed. Whereas she loves her body, as different as it might be, she's embraced it. It's what she knows. It's what she's grown up with. And she loves it fiercely. And so the film is really not only about finding others that look like her, but finding the ability to love yourself fiercely, regardless of what society is telling you. It's a very warm, personal, accessible way of thinking about disability issues within the context of a personal documentary story. And she's such a charismatic figure. You fall in love with her and her just matter-of-factness as she's going through this journey. It's really something I saw on the earlier side and fell in love with, and we were so happy to be able to include it within the lineup this year. And what about another personal doc, Mila Sutando? Melissa Tondo is a really lovely, creative film. It's named after its filmmaker, Melissa Tondo Bangela. She's a South African filmmaker. She calls herself a reluctant filmmaker. She's a poet. She grew up during apartheid. And as she says, she didn't know that apartheid existed until after it was over. She grew up in this a community that was set aside by the apartheid government called the Transkai. And it was a place for Black residents to live. It was sort of a propagandistic tool to try to convince not only them, but also the outside world that there was nothing wrong with apartheid and that people there were happy in the Transkai. They like being separate. They like the situation. Whereas, in fact, we know that's not the case. So the film is her personal narrative split up into several chapters as she addresses the history, the past, the present, and the future of South Africa. Not only talks about the history of Transkai through the experiences of herself and her relatives, but it also looks at that moment when apartheid is ending and what happens to the young generation as they are integrating within schools. What did this all mean in the end? And how does it relate to their own sense of self, their own sense of their Black identity? What does it mean for whiteness and white identity? One of the most important parts of the film is the relationship that Melissa Tondo has with one of the producers, the main producer of the film. They have a very long discussion around privilege and whiteness and blackness that is really going to be thought-provoking and eye-opening for a lot of audience members who aren't necessarily thinking about these things. But it's a really lovely film done in an incredibly poetic, lyrical fashion. It doesn't look like any other film that we have in the lineup. This is a new filmmaker voice that has had support on the documentary circuit in terms of being at different forums and funding opportunities and things like that. But we're really so happy to be able to offer this to reach audiences. One title that seems to turn the camera on the medium itself is Fantastic Machine. What can you tell us about that one? Yeah, this is by a filmmaking pair. They have made shorts together, including a 10-meter tower, which is a short that was really popular on the circuit several years back. This is their first feature as a team. As you said, it, it looks at our desire to film ourselves and to sort of record things and what that means about ourselves in a digital age, what it means that we are able to create so much content and to film so much versus decades ago where doing that was not very possible, costly, prohibitive, et cetera. It's a really fascinating look at the way that we turn ourselves into the object of, of the camera and is another one which is going to ask viewers to really think about their own activities and what they do and why do they take those photos and what does that mean and what does image making mean in a society now that is able to replicate things as we do. It's one of those that like has a seductive energy to it in the sense of how it's constructed out of these in some cases, familiar video clips, memes, et cetera, that are around already. But the way that they've structured it is completely their own and asks the viewer to turn internally in terms of their own relationship to image making. And again, unfortunately, we didn't have time to talk about every film in the world cinema documentary section. So please do consult the Sundance website. 
Now let's move on to premieres. I couldn't help notice that a filmmaker whose film won the Grand Jury Prize the first year that I went to Sundance, Tracy Draz Tragos, who made the film Rich Hill that year, she's back at Sundance with her film Plan C. So, you know, premieres for us is a place where we are able to spotlight films that are from alumni filmmakers, some that have already been in competition and won competition, or that deal with well-known figures. In this case, Plan C is by one of our award-winning filmmakers of the past, Tracy Dostregos, and is about a very provocative subject matter, which is it's about a network of activists, essentially healthcare providers and others who are helping those who would like to get access to medical abortion through abortion pills, get access to them. In some cases, they are skirting the law. In other cases, they might even be breaking the law but they see it as an incredibly important, vital, urgent thing that they're doing to help connect these individuals who want to make choices about their reproductive freedoms to get access to these pills. She's been working on this for a very long time, predating Dobbs, the decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, and really profiles these very courageous individuals as they are doing the best they can to go with their conscience and help individuals make decisions for themselves. It's strong. It's something that is, we think, vital and urgent to be able to share the story to show the links that some people are willing to take in order to do what they think is right. Since we're on the theme of social issues, what other social issue docs in this category? A really important one for us is actually a series because this section allows us to also do some episodic programming. And the one I'm talking about now is called Murder in Bighorn. It's a three-part Showtime docuseries. This looks at the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women that has been going on for a very long time and is never given quite the amount of media attention that it deserves. It looks at what is happening. It profiles several cases of missing or murdered Indigenous women and tries to put a spotlight on what the situation was for their individual stories and what it says on a larger scale for why this is happening, why this epidemic is taking place. It also uses the format of the episodic structure to its advantage in a really smart way because you think at the beginning you're watching a true crime story, but it morphs and changes as you're watching the multiple episodes, and we're showing all three episodes, to a larger, less familiar kind of territory of not just true crime, but something that speaks about our society as as a whole. It's really worth the investment of time to see this series because it's an incredibly important story. We also just coincidentally have a fiction feature that deals with this very same topic called Fancy Dance that is in the U.S. dramatic competition. One thing I noticed, not just about this section, but other sections is it's not that uncommon to see two directors attached to a film. And that is the case with this one film, Invisible Beauty. We mentioned it earlier, mm -hmm. produced by Lisa Cortez, but it has two directors, one of whom I believe is the subject of the film, correct? That's correct. Beth Ann Hardison is one of the directors and the film is about her. And she is directing it with Sundance alum, Frederick Chang, who was at the festival most recently, I believe, with Halston, a really fantastic film about the fashion designer. Frederick, to say something really quickly about him, he is one of our best documentarians that deal with the fashion industry. He made a fantastic film about Dior. He made another fantastic film about Diana Vreeland. So he's really perfectly positioned to help tell this story. But with what this film is about, it makes 100% sense that the subject of the film, Beth Ann Hardison, is also one of the directors of this film. For those that do not know Beth Ann Hardison, she's a pioneer. She was one of the first very visible Black fashion models. But beyond that, and what the film really is importantly doing, it shows the advocacy work that she has done behind the scenes in many ways. It's not just, again, one of these documentaries that are biographical in the sense of, I did this, then I did this, then I did this. This really gives the full range of what Bethann has done in the fashion industry, which is a lot of it mentorship and behind the scenes advocacy work to help create a more equitable space for people of color. And so even though it's about her, sometimes she feels like she's in the back seat a little bit and she's uplifting other voices and other situations that she has had a hand in. But it's really important that she's leading the telling of her story. People don't know enough about her and they should because she's a fascinating figure and she brings that level of uplifting others, even in the making of this film, in the way that it's constructed, in the way that she tells the story that she tells. You used the word pioneer, and I think there are some other pioneers featured in this section as well. One that comes to mind that people might not necessarily associate with that term, but I think it makes sense is Judy Bloom. Absolutely. Yeah. Judy Bloom Forever is the film. So Judy Bloom, for listeners, of course, will recognize that name as, for many, a very nostalgic name from their childhood growing up reading her books. She's one of the pioneering young adult authors, but her work has always been at the center of controversy because she wrote very honestly and candidly about subjects that that were of interest to young people uh, that they may not know about, about puberty, about their changing bodies. 
And that got her into hot water with more conservative elements out there that want to keep kids reading very safe work. So this film definitely looks at her biography, but really does look at the impact that she's had on her readers, on the controversies that her work engendered in terms of calls for book banning, for censorship. She's a really vital, fascinating figure that is still out there. She owns her own bookstore now and interacts with fans. The other thing we really loved about this film is that the fans have a voice in this film because she wrote back to her fans who wrote her letters and she maintained sometimes decades-long conversations with them and some of those figure in the film as well. We think beyond the nostalgic appeal that there will be for many audience members, there is that very vital and very unfortunately still present impulse in our society by some quarters to censor things. This film really definitely speaks to that and how she fought against efforts at book banning and censorship of her own work. Sundance has a really strong tradition of showing great environmental films, important films. Deep Rising seems like it could be the next one. Correct. That definitely is a film that we would direct folks that have interest in environmental issues. This film is by another alumni of the festival, Matthew Ritz, who made a film called Annotate's Arc several years back. I'm going to forget the year, maybe 2017 or so. This is a really interesting film that people may not know about the topic that it covers. So what this film is dealing with is with the extraction of deep sea minerals. And the way that it's done can be very destructive. If done properly, though, it can help deal with the energy crisis that we have around a lot of our digital technology. The film looks at what is going on, some of the people that are leading the charge to try to get the extraction going, and the secretive organization that kind of is dealing with setting the rules for it. It felt to us like it's on the cutting edge in terms of questions around the environment that we may not know about that are not necessarily front page news for everybody, but is are going to be increasingly important to us. And it's something that folks should know about. A really interesting aside on this one is that one of the EPs is also the narrator of the film, Jason Momoa, Aquaman himself, which is obviously very thematically linked to why this undersea environmental film is something that he took deep interest in. Speaking of cutting edge, the next section has four documentaries in it this year. What can you tell us about Kim's video, King Cole, Kokomo City, and The Tuba Thieves? For those that have been following Sundance for a long time, they know that Next is our section where we have innovative storytelling, often the fresh new voices that are out there. It's traditionally been a fiction-focused section, although that's changed in the last few years. In particular, this year, we do have, as you said, four films. I'll start with Kim's video. These are not necessarily new filmmakers. They've been at Sundance with other projects in the past. But what we love about this film, and it's one of our day one titles, as I mentioned before, one of the films that sort of kicks off the festival. David Redman and Ashley Sabin are the filmmakers. What we love about this this is that Next is a place where there's innovation and play taking place with the formal conventions of filmmaking. And that's really in evidence here in Kim's video. Kim's video was a place in New York City, had multiple locations, it was a video rental store. But for many, it was actually like film school. It was an eclectic assemblage of 55,000 different films, a lot of them bootlegs, things you wouldn't be able to find out anywhere else. And it went out of business. And the reasons it went out of business are not a surprise, a competition from things like streamers, just changing business models, etc. There was a strange thing that happened, though. The owner of Kim's video is a Korean businessman named Mr. Kim. He really felt that what he had was an archive worth preserving. And he made an offer that he would give the archive to anyone that made it accessible to the Kim's video membership. And that took the collection as a whole because he didn't want just piecemeal parts of it being put in some library somewhere. He wanted all of it kept. And through a very complicated series of situations, a small town in Sicily decided to take on this challenge and to take the collection. What happens next is what the film deals with because there was a lot of press attention as to what happened when the collection moved to Sicily, but then you heard nothing. There've been some really fantastic reports about what happened, but this is the film version of it. I would tell listeners not not to research too much about it, because part of what this film is about is the joy of the discovery. But what we love about the film is how the filmmakers have played with form. It's at once sort of a personal cine essay. It's an investigative doc. It's even a heist film in parts. Really enjoyable, fun film that ultimately tells a story, but tells the story of cinephilia. It tells the story about the love of cinema. It sounds delightful. Can't wait to see that one. And I will stay away from Wikipedia. There you go. The Tube of Thieves is probably the most creative and different film that you're going to find in this section. It really is literally unlike any other film. It's by a, a deaf filmmaker who really wanted to explore how sound operates and particularly how sound works for deaf or hard of hearing audience and how they perceive and deal with conventional films in a way. And so what she's done, her name's Allison O'Daniel, she takes as a starting point this kind of strange incident that took place over a couple of years in Southern California where tubas were being stolen from 
from local high schools. Now, the film is not really about tubas or about the thefts, even though it figures in there. It's more about how we listen and how stories get told. And so what she's done in this film is she takes multiple examples of how silence functions. She'll look at historical examples of concerts that are done without sound. The one thing that she talks about where Prince, the iconic performer, did a performance for a school of the deaf because he thought, why the hell not? People that are deaf or hard of hearing enjoy music too in their own way and wanted to give them an experience. So it weaves in those kinds of stories with a kind of a semi-fictional overlay that deals partly with this tuba theft situation, but creates its own syntax around how you view and how sound functions within film. It's hard to even describe this film, as you can tell, but it is really worthwhile for people who are interested and adventurous in terms of their film selections to take a look at it because it's so unique, so different. And we really think audiences are going to get something very special out of seeing this film. And we are running short of time. So oh, no. if, you, if, if yes. there's anything you would like to add about King Cole or Coco, yes, I, I, Kokomo I would, City. I would love to. Kokomo City is a really raw film. We talk about independent films being raw, but this is incredibly raw. It's about the experiences of Black trans sex workers in New York and Georgia. And it's a really eye-opening, very revelatory type of film that talks about their experiences, about their relationship to the larger mainstream Black culture, their role with it, and really fascinating for a film about sex work. It also has a significant representation and participation of some of their clients, which you don't usually see. So that one is something for folks to check out for sure. And then King Cole is a lovely, lyrical film that looks at Appalachia and its history with Cole and what a future outside of coal would look like. Poetic, there's hybrid elements to it as well, but it's a really lovely film made by a filmmaker from the region as well, which is really important. It doesn't tell the story of Appalachia in this kind of stereotypical way. It tells it from a very lived in personal experience. Lovely film. Also notable is from producers behind Fire of Love and Navalny. So you can trust that this film team knows what they're doing and they're going to tell a really great story. Finally, there's one documentary in the Spotlight section. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so Spotlight, again, for the listeners that may not know, Spotlight is a section that is a smaller section, but it's about films that we love that have already premiered in major other festivals like Cannes or Venice, etc. In this case, Squaring the Circle is the sole documentary in this section, and it is a film that premiered at Telluride. It's by the renowned filmmaker Anton Corbin, who has made mostly fictional films, but is known for his very distinctive, artful black and white cinematography, and that carries over into this film. This tells the story of Hypnosis, which is a art studio, essentially design studio that is behind some of the most iconic record album covers of the 1970s. We're talking about like Pink Floyd, those iconic Dark Side of the Moon, how those ideas for images like that and several other well-known cover art came about. It is full of fantastic stories of folks that love music and love design. And so if you care about either of those things, you will find it to be a delight to watch this film. And it's told very stylishly and with a lot of humor as well. And as we know, docs that are not always that easy or humorous to watch. So when you get those moments, you really want to embrace them. It's clear that the lineup this year, as is the case every year, is incredibly deep wide, offers many different things and many different perspectives. So congratulations to you on pulling it all together. Obviously, we couldn't talk about every film. I apologize to the filmmakers we didn't get to. But I do have one final question for you. In the spirit of being back on the mountain for the first time in years, my question is, I know you've done many, many Q&As over the years. What's the best Q&A question you've ever heard from the audience? Wow, that's great. Yeah, because sometimes you do hear the same old. I know. I wanted to be positive, basically. No, I appreciate the positivity for sure. God, that is a great question. I don't even know. The ones that surprise us and that are not the standard ones are the ones that we love. I can't speak for all filmmakers, but I think filmmakers appreciate when it's not just the same old, how long did you shoot? What was your budget? You know, those sorts of things. When you get something that's a little bit more out of left field, I love that, especially if it's coming from a place of curiosity and kindness as opposed to trying to get you. I'm sorry, but I can't think of anything, but coming to it with a sense of curiosity and interest that is not the same old, that's, I think, the best kind of question to throw out there in a Q&A. Maybe not the fairest question to throw your way at the last minute, but I love your answer, and I think we will consider it a challenge to the audience. Go to Park City, attend these screenings, and come up with next year's best audience Q&A question of all time. I love that. Thank you, Ken. That's great. Thanks so much, Basil. And again, congratulations to you and the entire team and look forward to seeing you on the mountain. Thank you so much. My pleasure to do this again. 